two. How can we shine light on this problem of sexual slavery so brightly that it vanishes under the exposure forever? Suppose I told you that a particular Supreme Court justice was getting kickbacks on the sex slave business for the White House, and I told you I knew that was true. Let us go back to the 2000 election. I believe that Bush got into office because the Supreme Court was paid in favors and in money. What I'm alleging is a conflict of interest on the part of at least one Supreme Court justice. Others of them might be involved as well. It is against the standards of legal practice for a justice not to recuse himself if he has financial ties to the members of a case. When Bush got into office, all of the cabal that backed him and whose fortunes rose with him were members of the case. Now my having been a sex slave to the Bushes and Rockefellers is how I know this information. Since I was tortured periodically by Bush, Sr., Rockefellers, and their henchmen, I was under considerable duress to do as they said. Exposed. George Bush pedophile sex ring and blackmail of Congress. I was not a free agent. Rockefeller had me reviewing financial transactions as he made as I am a mathematician with some usual invaluable skills. About a year before the 2000 election, I flagged a particular transaction, or rather set of transactions, as likely to prove highly problematic in the future. I recommended that they promptly be reversed. David Rockefeller declined, saying that I would lead to too much trouble. The transactions were a series of six payments to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The payment amounts were large and curious. They were formed only of sixes and were progressive. It was like a person with a mathematical obsession was trying to inform the justice of their problem in a creative way. The first check was for $66. The second was for $666. The next was for $6,666. The fourth check was for $66,666. The fifth check was for $666. Oh, sorry, $666,666. And the final one was for $6,666,666. So we are speaking a total payment of over $7.5 million, which is not a trivial amount to show up in a justice bank account in a period of one week. Now, I said these were checks, and that is not entirely accurate. It was a bank transfer that was listed as if it was a check on the statement, but there was no paper trail of checks to back it up. The transfers came from a David Rockefeller account at his bank at the Justice account at the same bank. The bank is one whose records I have monitored for years for unusual transactions per Rockefeller's orders. Substantial assets of it, that bank, are the direct result of the sex slave business, mostly of the U.S. side of it. For instance, when Rockefeller charged a man a million dollars for my services, a million was received from that man by the bank the next day. That was a recurrent and predictable result of my spreading my legs and my mind as a Rockefeller slave. I had been in and out of Rockefeller estate and beds as their slave since I was 16 and DCI Helms awarded it. I said it David Rockefeller who was hard of hearing. David, what in the world were you thinking of when you sent those sums of money over to the Supreme Court Justice? He appeared not to have heard me because he replied, I was thinking of you, my dear. Undeterred, I repeated my question louder and closer to his ear. David, what in the world were you thinking of when you sent those sums of money over to the Supreme Court Justice? This time he looked at me quizzically and said, Did I forget to put my hearing aid in? He never put it in the morning before he got out of bed. I moved the cream-colored satin sheet off my naked body and got up and got him his hearing aid, and after he put it in, I repeated my question for the third time. David, what in the world were you thinking when you sent those sums of money over to the Supreme Court Justice? He said to me, I don't, you don't have to yell at me, I can hear perfectly well. Meanwhile, both the butler and the maid had to come to see what the ruckus was about and become witnesses to answers he gave me. He said, I wanted him to know who his boss at the Supreme Court was, so I sent him the message in a way that I knew he would get. And don't forget it, I am your boss too. 
Being a good slave, I kissed his naked thigh playfully and told him that I would never forget that he was my boss if he would explain to me a simpleton why he sent six transactions, but the last one would have conveyed the same message. He looked off at the distance for a moment and then asked me, Don't you get it? The maid and the butler were both still posed at the edge of the bed awaiting his orders, if there were to be any. No, I said as innocently as possible. Why? You know why, he said angrily. The devil cannot refuse a request when asked six times. Asking him what, I asked. Asking him to do whatever I want, he said somewhat nastily. And then, in case I was too simple to have understood, he said, I want him to serve my interests. I have paid him to serve my interests, and that is that. He will do as I say from now on. Months passed, and the election's votes were counted and left uncounted both. The case went to the Supreme Court, and no more than a month after that, I was in that man David's bed again in order to avoid his guards torturing me yet once again. He had his hearing aid in this time. We were in D.C. at a White House dinner under Clinton earlier in that evening. He had mentioned the Chief Justice's name once in the conversation. He had gloated to Clinton, The Justice is a good man. I believe that he would do anything I asked him to. As a personal favor, mind you. David had paid for my white silk sequined sequined gown, and he was removing it at that moment to expose a breast. I asked him at that opportune moment, David, do you think I should sleep with the Chief Justice at the Supreme Court? He asked in a little spasm of jealousy, as he liked to sell me, but only if I objected to the man. Why do you ask? Because you don't love me anymore, I lamented. Yes, I do, he lied, not so convincingly. I never loved anyone but better than you. Now the part I did believe, he never loved anyone. He did not know what love was. Love is taking on yourself torture to protect others. I let the groan fall to the floor, and he hurried to pick it up. Or the gown fall to the floor. I kissed the back of his neck and asked him, Why did you want to give me services to that chief justice? His neck flashed, and he turned to me and said, I don't think that the money would cover the full amount for his election services. I was wrong. It was enough. But six transactions, I fussed. Surely someone will notice. I will pay them all not to, he said. No one at the bank will tell. I am not at the Chase Manhattan Bank as I tell you. How does one get those records to prove the buying of a presidency? I know how one proves the Chief Justice's opinion was swayed by seven million dollars. Or is it just enough that he received the bribe? Since I am a sex slave and men deposited money into Rockefeller's private account at the bank, the same exact account that the Chief Justice received the money from, I wonder if I can get the records of the money David Rockefeller made from my services and how he distributed my money. Since my worth to him as a slave was dependent partially on whether the man he wanted to go into the White House and that the wages that he stole from me, I don't have a right to the records that show the justice to keep me enslaved to this man in the White House. I really do not understand the law so well. I think that the Chief Justice owes us all a big apology. He put a sex slave boss's son in the White House. He accepted a bribe that kept me enslaved and tortured as well. Now you could say that the Chief of Justice at the Supreme Court did not know what the money he was given came from the sex slave business. And that is possible. But I think it would be hard for him to say that he didn't know that David Rockefeller was in that business. Because he asked Rockefeller for my sexual services. And that was before he received the seven plus million dollars. Now bear with me as I slow down and try to get through this carefully. It was about in Clinton's first term. I was at the dinner of the state of White House. David was there and so the man who became or was Chief Justice at the time. He was rather handsome for his age, though frankly I would not have slept with him if I had a free choice without duress. Partway through the evening he came to where I was standing next to David holding his drink. He asked David confidently like why don't you send her over to me sometime, as if I wasn't there. David and the disgust, the price for my services. The justice raised his left eyebrow at the figure and set his drink down, saying, That is too steep for me. David made him some kind of deal as I wandered off to get another drink for the judge so as not to have to listen to myself disgust as an innate object to be bought and sold at the whim of others. 
When I returned, a date was discussed, but the justice was impatient and led me into a bedroom in the White House. Not knowing his way around well, he will give him the benefit of the doubt he put me in Clinton's bed. Clinton thus came in a later in the middle of the evening to find us in his bed. He chuckled and said, expensive date, huh? And left. I guess that everyone knew Rockefeller was a tightwad and charged top dollar for his women. I did see that the justice put the money or check in the hand of David personally. I am happy to answer questions. The sex slave trade and the drug trade are directly related in a number of ways. They have the same bosses. They have the same agents and the same money laundering practices in almost any intelligence setting. Another victim says the same. Child trafficking, ritual sex abuse, and MKUltra are a single worldwide operation run by the United States, the UK, and the Australian Secret Services. However, the CIA and the KGB are not as separate as one would think. That has been the case since before World War I. One of the Rockefellers funded the Bolshevik Revolution for Lenin in order to acquire more of the southern oil fields of Russia for his Shell Oil Company. That meant that in World War I and World War II, the Rockefellers had heavy influence on the KGB and the CIA together. This is getting closer to answering your question when you realize... Since the Rockefellers' money was originally made in the opium trade in the 1800s, that their fortunes are vast and political connections even vaster. The family has been one of the major movers in the sex slave business, accounting for about 40% of it since the 1800s worldwide. They currently have about 28% of the drug trade, having slipped in it for a number of reasons. Having said how intertwined the two are, now I want to say that they usually have different men handling their operations once you get below the level of the chief managers. For example, Nelson Rockefeller was head of both his sex slave and his drug business, and the heads of the CIA were his public side employees in that they had the power to get them fired or executed. DCI William J. Casey Casey died as a result of a hit by the Rockefeller family because he didn't do what they wanted him enough to please them. The brain cancer he had was bogus. It was someone else's x-rays with his name on them. And he was DCI at the time. He did not fully understand the power structure that he was in. He was fooled by the organizational charts that showed the CIA as a public institution headed by the president. I tried to explain to him myself how things really work. He didn't want to believe me. The U.S. is not a democracy or a republic or hasn't been, certainly not, since Jimmy Carter. But I doubt it was functionally once during the whole of the 20th century. Howard Zinn and the People's History of the United States would partially agree with me. It is easy to see that the populist movement in the 1930s did not move the government. The corporations called in the Pinkertons and put down the strikes. The CIA itself is divided into departments so that while the Department of Operations handles moving both drugs and sex slaves, different people handle these. It's like at a university. They are professors of literature and of history, and though they both read books and sometimes the same books, they are responsible for different aspects of culture, have their own classes, and sometimes their own students that never cross-intersect or meet. Let me get more specific. There was a deputy executive director of the CIA, number two man in the agency at one point, who secretly agreed with me that the sex slave business was wrong. In his office was a filing cabinet that had all the contracts between suppliers and distributors in it. It was not kept on computers, too insecure. The drug trade contacts were in separate filing cabinets. He let me destroy the sex slave files in his office one day with a paper shredder. It set the sex slave trade in the Western world in slow motion. It took almost two years to regain its momentum. I got tortured for it. I didn't regret doing it. What I did not much affect the CIA officers were the running the delivery of sex slaves in the field. They still knew where to get the slaves, who to deliver them to, and they had the hardware connections to do it.
What happened was that the contacts between the bosses were destroyed and they bickered, each claiming more of a share of the market than they were entitled to, given that all the pieces and connections, the receipts, were now gone. In the face of this harmony, they were unable to collaborate well anymore and the trade slowed down about 30% as the groups gave into skirmishing. The more they fought, they eventually recovered. Surprisingly, it had very little effect on the drug trade, even though the ships carrying boats sometimes. They didn't slow it because they still had the drug agreements, and they still honored those. The U.S. Navy was coerced into running both sex slaves and drugs at various times with their ships. Most admirals are straight-laced and do not approve and will work very, very hard to stop that sort of thing. But unless one is a remote viewer, it is not possible to inspect every container coming into a Navy ship for drugs. People are not as easy to hide. Let me see if I can go deeper into your question because I think that this is an important one. The real issue for me is whether it is possible to get these immortal, soul-destroying trades under control on the planet so that people can have sane lives. I believe the answer is yes, it is completely possible. That is watching the business for 40 years from the inside, and I still have that opinion. Yes, it is completely corrupt and pervasive. Yes, it is a corrupted banking government system and every understanding of what intelligence agencies and national security is about and how to do them. Every sim- even so, even though the planet has these problems, a terminal cancer patient with several different types of invasive cancer... I still know that it is possible for the patient to recover. I am going to see if I can explain how I know that to you in a way that you can accept. The the simplest answer is that Nelson Mandela knew he was going to be president of South Africa and end apartheid when he first started his political career. He said that before he went into prison for the first time. He said it at a rally. Winston Churchill, as a child, knew that England was going to be in trouble later, and he himself would have to save her. Gandhi knew he could force the British to walk out of India if he persisted. General Billy Mitchell knew that in 1923 that he had to get the U.S. to make airplanes because air power would determine who won World War II. I know that I will reform intelligence and governments worldwide to prevent nuclear holocausts. I often know things will certainly, which is why I was useful to DCIs. I intend to do this and I will be the grace of God because it is the job God has given me and he will not fail me. He never has. Even though I have been a thorn on the side of Rockefeller, the Bush, and the CIAs, and even the KGB for decades, they have tolerated me and used me because my skills are very useful. I really only have one skill, faith. No matter what problem was brought to me, I could figure out how to reduce it to the ethical part of it to do and accomplish it, because I relied on an all-knowing, all-accomplishing wisdom. Christ walked on water and raised the dead. He healed the sick. People like Padre Pio have also been associated with miracles. Yes, it will take a miracle for the world to change and become sane and stop worshipping death and destruction, but in my experience, miracles are not only possible, but can be reliably invoked Maybe that is more of an answer than you want. I used to take an auditorium full of naval officers and get them to be psychically very accurate in literally one evening. It took them a week to get used to it. That, like the four-minute mile, used to be impossible. It isn't anymore. The corruptions on the planet will disappear because of an advance in technology. The advance is the transmission of being able to directly read the Akashic Records collective consciousness through technology. Then there is no way to hide corruption. The sex slave trade, the drug trade, the theft of elections, wars, etc. all have secrecy as necessary ingredients and lies about the consequence of one's actions as requisites. They look a lot like separate problems, all very overwhelming. But there is really only one problem, a very simple accounting problem. People are not adding up the real cost to themselves correctly. They don't have the skill needed to do so. They can be corrected soon. Technological and technological advances change society, sometimes radically and always permanently. 
For 40 years, I have been remote viewing training the U.S. government. The bosses have liked the results that come out of it and but wanted to hide the technology from the public. They are resisting it going public, but they will not be able to contain it. It is rather like the 100th monkey experiment. The innovation has already become part of the collective unconscious and will manifest everywhere. I trained over 15,000 people. That is a lot of people who actually know the truth about how the world can shift out of annihilation. They may still have a little hesitation to use their skill to expose the corruption to release it into forgiveness and repentance, just like the early pilots had some hesitation to fly across oceans, but the inevitability is there. The Atlantic, uh, the Akashic Records will become the basis of people's decisions making because so many people have tapped into it. These records are without bias or flaw. The decisions that come out of union with them have certainty of results. Most people have never experienced knowing something with certainty. It seems like a contradiction. When I taught at the Pentagon in 1981, I asked everyone who brought my class a problem to write it down and then later write it down if they were satisfied with the solution that we provided them in a week's time. I had hundreds of difficult problems brought in and at the end, I had only one man not signed that he was satisfied. He had died in the meantime. There is a good and workable solution to every single problem that is ethical to solve. It is just that it can require a lot of faith, courage, and dedication to get to it. From my perspective, Finders was a CIA-run mind-control sex slave operation. I will first tell you how I knew about the experiment, then what the goal of the experiment was, then how the experiment was run, then what the lives of the children were like under it, then what went wrong with the experiment, then what the results of the experiment were, then what the CIA analysts said that the results were. This really should be a length book about the enslavement of children, but I'll keep it to this article. I have 40 years inside the CIA, and it was my intention to someday be able to expose all of this abuse by the U.S. government, but I don't have the time to write out all the details today. I just want to cover the overview of these topics. My specific knowledge of the Finders experiment came from reading three books in the CIA talking to the two in-house researchers who were responsible for administrating the project in the Department of Plans and the division that should be called Mind Control, but due to the sensitive nature of the topic was instead called Future Assets. Its main office was on the third floor of the main CIA building until it moved to the fifth floor under Gross. By then, I was gone. The importance of the move was that the higher ups in the building, the closer to the DCI, the higher the priority of operations and funding. That is why the CIA works. The main facility for that division is not surprisingly in a separate building because the CIA has grown over time. It occupies two floors of a large building and has over 40 full-time researchers in it. These are only devoted to mind control. The CIA has a separate division for assets and their recruiting. The largest future assets facility is in Maryland, across the Potomac by about 40 miles. In fact, one of its researchers will call Ted Halstead, bemoaned to me as it caused him to be on the road a lot. That facility has over 200 researchers in it and has a clinic and psychiatric, or psychiatric hospital for children associated with it. Nominally, it is a university research center devoted to the study of childhood mental illness. However, the clients came from minor problems like learning disabilities and attention deficit disorder and leave as multiple personality disorders or schizophrenics without the parents knowing. The clinic only takes high-functioning children, not schizophrenics or cerebral palsy kids. Unsurprisingly, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies are major funders of it. To work there requires a special security clearance that only the CIA can give out. I went over to look at the place once to size it up. That was in the 1980s. Everyone was wearing the same green badges that the CIA uses with the same magnetic strips on the back of the picture ID. To get into the main research facility, one inserts the badge into the same type of entry style as if it were using the CIA at the time. I inserted my badge from the CIA and got in no questions asked. That time, I inserted my badge from the CIA and got in no questions asked. Now I was on a bit of a mission at the time. 
I wanted to leave a particular book on the desk of a particular researcher by hand and then leave before I was known who had done that. The action of mine related to an unsolved murder of a child. The researcher was supposed to follow up on all of his experimental subjects. I wanted him to know who had happened to that particular child as the results of the experiment that he had designed and run. The book was on the internal CIA production for eyes only, and he was on the list of eyes to see it. I felt that it was a deliberate oversight that needed to be corrected, so I did so. The book had come to my attention at a meeting between the DCI and the CIA risk assessment lawyers on a possible lawsuit for a wrongful death. The DCI wanted me there to ask them what was in the book and if it was true. I asked for a copy of it to read it, and naturally enough, they gave one to me. I was not on the list of the eyes only, either, but I had a need to know, and so did that researcher. I told the DCI that the contents of the book, produced by a CIA analyst and an FBI homicide officer, were indeed true. The DCI frowned at that and began to censor that book. The murderer was one of George Bush Sr.'s, who was Vice President of the United States at the time. The book had been commissioned by the CIA to find all the loose ends and suppress them. To do that, it had to have the truth. It is not possible to do a competent cover-up job if you don't have accurate intelligence to start with. The DCI wanted me to write a report on what else the CIA needed to know that was not in that book. Most of what I supplied was a bit of over... 20 other similar victims of the same vice president, each one of which needed a thorough and complete investigation. And they have still not got, got well, they have still not got those investigations. Part of how I later ended up as a pathologist part-time at the White House when Bush Sr. was president was due to the particular case almost coming to trial. The boy was six when Bush ritually killed him in a skull and bone ceremony to curry the favor of the Dark Lord, Satan. The murder was committed within five miles of the university research facility. Most of the 20-odd victims were killed at the same spot. It was quick and easy to drive from the White House there and back. This is hard on my regular personality to write down. She didn't even hear about this one before, so bear with us as we try to go through the material in as straight a line as possible, on a thoroughfare without taking any turnoffs, until you get to the exit and go about two miles east through a locked gate onto a military base that is quite small. That base was put there just for Bush Sr. as Vice President. The only function of it, and it's still there, is to skim off some of those research kids for rituals, as well as pocket military funding. The base is tiny by most standards. It houses only the guards that work in the security of it. There are about three full-time enlisted personnel and only one officer who is secretly a Freemason. There is no PX, no parade grounds, nothing. It is still there today as I type this. It might be raised tomorrow like the McMartin tunnels as a result of what I'm saying, but today, as a remote viewer, I can see that it has one main square building in the center of a square parking lot with the entrance on its west side and a guard station at the gate around it. Only one person has the key. That is Bush Sr. It is his private reserve. The guards are his prisoners inside of it. They are army recruits in theory and on paper. Although no guard assigned to work there has ever made it out alive. That is to make sure they don't talk about what they have to see. What have they seen? Bush Sr. coming in and out. A boy child driven up in a van and then loaded when Bush Sr. comes. A pathologist and the guards Bush brings with him carry out a coffin as Bush Sr. leaves. Access to the road to the gate is restricted. So no neighbors are passing traffic are going to see the strange recurrence of events that happens night after night. While Bush Sr. was president, he didn't have time to go there and the White House morgue and incinerator were used instead. 
That base has no morgue or incinerator in it. Bush Sr. arrives usually with three men, two of his own guards, and the pathologist. They wait outside the building while Bush Sr. sodomizes and tortures the child to death. Why am I telling you this? The fact is that the way I have described this makes it possible for any intelligence service with a satellite to document that Bush Sr. has done this. All they have to do is know the position of this base, look back on their Landsat images, and watch as the boys go in, as Bush Sr. arrives, and the coffins come out when Bush Sr. departs. They have the proof already in their files if they look closely. What pegs it is that base is the fact that the guards do not go in and out of the gates. That is easy to verify on satellite images. That lack of regular traffic. The base has a secure phone line. A special type of receiver on the roof broadcasts a encrypted satellite feed to Bush Sr. directly. That also pegs it. The particular type of receiver as a presidential model. That is a little harder to see on the sat images, but as the sun first rises on a sunny day, it would show up due to the distinctive shadow of that model in low angle light. I bet that the base will be raised tomorrow, gone, wiped off the face of the earth, but that sat data will still be there in Russia, China, and many other places. Because my emails are interesting to many intelligence services, they will get this information. What they do with it will depend on future political situations that are hard for the average intelligence person to predict. By the way, the guards that work there are mind control subjects, graduates of that university research facility. The research there has been going on a long time. It is one of the early MK Ultra facilities. Georgetown University should be called the CIA University. The mental research facility is not on the main campus near the regular college students. It is on a separate piece of land that makes it harder to run away from. The name is, is not Georgetown, but is part of Georgetown University. Some people at the CIA have complained that their attention deficit disorder is associated with the fluoridation of water and that the CIA refuses the release of data on it in order to keep getting as many normal kids delivered to the door of their mind control clinics around North America as they can. They also complain that the CIA knows that the treatment for a detention deficit disorder, a drug to chelate and the fluoride and expel it from the body and refuses to publish the data as well. It is true that there are a number of books on the subject for internal consumption at the CIA. An ordinary epidemiologist could look at the issue and find out those rumors within the CIA are true. When the university facility history and mind control comes to the public's attention, it will be very literal hairy. Hundreds, no thousands of parents will suddenly want to know if the child, grown or otherwise, was a mind control subject in the control group. I will mention in passing three fairly reliable methods of knowing that. The information comes from the CIA reports of what to do with confused parents if they get another therapist later, i.e. what disinformation to give them to prevent them from uncovering that their kid was mind controlled. The first piece of this information, no one can tell if a person is a mind control victim, certainly not a regular family or neighbors, only a qualified therapist could possibly know, and since they can't tell, no one can tell. That is given because the CIA found that about 56% of the children were discovered to have uncovered relatives and family members as robotic or messed up in their minds or with inexplicable behaviors that came from outside themselves. Teachers were particularly good at distinguishing control kids from experimental kids, and a number of teachers near that facility were killed by the CIA on order of a dozen in a decade. Alexander, for example, a lot of people have noticed the very strange behavior of Facebook's co-founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg which shares all of the marks of being an MK Ultra victim. His super strange robotic behavior has made people joke about him being a lizard or an android, and memes such as these surfaced, are surfaced online. Since Facebook is believed by many to be a CIA database, as well as a legitimate business that generates a lot of revenue for the agency, 
It is only logical that it would be assigned to somebody who is part of their mind control program from childhood. I personally feel very sorry for the victims of mind control and don't find the above pictures funny. I just wish there was a way to help them. The second piece of disinformation that CIA prime therapists uh, around the world have dispended is that this is normal for kids to act out in their teenage years by cross-dressing. It turned out that just the opposite is true of normal teenagers. They want to define their sexual identity and to not cross-dress. Teenagers are the most intolerant to cross-dressing per CIA research. Unless, of course, they are mind-control subjects from younger childhood or infancy. They have been trained to sexually please chicken hawks by dressing very little boys as girls. There is no market for girls dressed as boys, so the cross-dressing only goes in one direction. The feminization of the masculine. Surprisingly, the CIA research showed that homosexual boys rarely cross-dress on their own at any given age, unless they had been used by porn filmmakers, chicken hawks or pedophiles, and MKUltra occult control. So the presence of cross-dressing in a teenage boy is highly predictive that he has been a mind control or cult abuse victim. The third piece of disinformation the CIA fed therapists and journals to fool them and the parents is a bit subtler. The disinformation said there is no normal age at which children should be told about sex. Sex education can occur at any age. It is up to the parents to decide. And sex education may be bad for kids, so maybe we shouldn't have it at our schools. The CIA spent a lot of money to convince parents, churches, and schools not to have real sex education classes. The reason was that when kids were allowed to freely talk in groups with their peers about their sexual experiences or fantasies or theories of sex, the kids themselves could see that some of them had very different levels of exposure to and sophistications with these matters, i.e. some were previously abused. So if sex education had to be taught, the CIA wanted to can talks and control the subjects from adults to children, in which the kids were not allowed to talk, only listen to the adults as they talked about adult sexuality. It thus trained sex educators to control the amount of kids and what they could and could not discuss, and to control what they saw as taboo. The CIA also found that there was a best age for sex education, the start of puberty. So when they fostered some campaigns to force the education to be earlier, the reason for that was that some young children whose native curiosities would lead to sophisticated knowledge of sexual action were coming out with it in front of their parents and therapists. It is better for the CIA if they could say that the kids learned in a sex education class than from the CIA prostitution of them are the MK Ultra sexual ritual abuse that they are exposed to in media. So although it sounds contradictory, the CIA's bottom line or sex education disinformation was don't have sex education classes, but if you must have them, have them very early. Do not let the kids talk. Expose them to every kind of deviance and taboo imaginable. And let the chips fall where they may, as they activated previously abused or occultly ritualized traumatized children, encouraging their cross-dressing and altered personalities, their sex slave alters. The CIA sponsored conferences for sex educators under a front company called the First Dating Experiencers. If I remember correctly, or maybe just First Experiences, when the abstinence-only people objected, the name of the front company was called something like Wait for Marriage. It was the same front, the same staff, address, etc. The CIA also pushes...
also places abstinence and marital infidelity fronts while not practicing these things themselves. It does that to increase the effectiveness of its sexual blackmail operations in local small communities. Sexual blackmail only works when society is condemning towards others. It is not in the abstinence of fidelity that the CIA is after. After It is the condemning of others it is after and violating taboos. Ironically, it will enforce the homosexual and LGBT agendas while resorting to blackmailing politicians in homosexual affairs. You can see how encouraging one behavior leads to the weaponization of it. Same with pedophilia. Or BDSM. Condemning a form of hate and the CIA provokes hate and condemning is a way of controlling others. It is a mind control technique that can be used to get people to fight wars, etc. against their best interests. The CIA is looking for handlers into a person's psyche. An emotional issue that drives a person to act. Then it exploits it. It also creates handles by by funding songs and lyrics into existence that become hypnotic. That is another whole level of mind control directed at populations creating tribes. I have gotten off track some here. This is useful information but not staying focused on the main topic. I want to mention another way in which I learned about the Finders experiment. The name Finders comes from the CIA slang. The word that was popular about the time this experiment started. It was a Acronym for fucked into not denying. Find. A boss that the CIA would tell an employee, go find out who did this. It was like a game of musical chairs. Everyone would deny that they did it until finally somebody was a scapegoat and was fucked into not being able to deny it. So the FINDERS acronym was a warning to people in the CIA to be careful and not get made into fall guys for this whole project by letting a word out about it. A person leaking such stuff usually got blamed for the stuff itself, as people outside the agency couldn't tell who was above whom and where the buck actually stopped. The first time I heard about the FINDERS group was at a party. Some kids were brought into the fancy D.C. estate dressed up almost in Halloween-type costumes. Little clowns, witches, ghosts, etc. But the costumes had big buttons on back panels over the butts and bottoms so the kids could easily have their private parts exposed while they were sodomized. The kids were trick-or-treat age, but it was not fall yet. There were about 15 of these kids brought into an upscale party of people in tuxedos and black ties. I arrived in the arm of the DCI Colby. Men started messing with these kids sexually, putting them on their laps with the panels unbuttoned. They did not even go into a separate room to do it. I felt uncomfortable with everything. It reminded me of my own abuse as a child. And I went out in the front steps to look up at the night, and I imagined being on some other planet for a while looking down on Earth. William Colby came out and asked me if I wanted to go home. That meant back to his bed. I just couldn't get away from the issue. I got a little mad at him and I asked him to be who brought the kids as if I didn't know him as a remote viewer. He was defensive and then admitted that they were a part of a CIA experiment and this was their coming out test. Their graduation test to see if they could seduce DC politicians to stay alive. Those who flunked the test were liquidated. I had been in that system all my life. Be useful sexually or die. I was not amused. Kobe went into the technical details of the experiments and it wasn't a good idea type of pitch to me. I threw up my dinner on the front steps of the estate and on his shoes and I excused myself to go wash up on the bathroom. I was good at throwing up when I wanted. What was it that Kobe had said to me? Kobe explained to me that the point at the Finder's experiment was to train children to be like drug-sniffing dogs, only they were there to sniff out who would make good pushers for not just drugs, but illegal weapons, sex slaves, etc. 
the CIA was looking for a down line in these business and wanted to use expendable agents. <coughs> the CIA was having trouble explaining how many of its operatives died. It never put names on the gold stars in the marble panel in the entranceway because the panel was a bald-faced lie. The CIA was looking for a down line. Or the CIA had lots of deaths in action of its officers. The gold stars were propaganda for the novices to con them into a sense of false security. Like that, the CIA cared about them. The CIA did not care how many of them died. The Rockefellers wanted their deaths. It was the GAO, General Accounting Office, who actually cared because they had to pay out insurance. Training agents is expensive. Covering up their deaths was even more expensive than that because of the expense of finding the loose ends and tying them off with other agents. So the CIA had decided, even before Kobe became DCI probably, to go to the cheaper expendables to foster its trade and contraband. The kids were divided into two groups. Those that received training on how to pick the people to become a pusher and make them into one are no training. In the no-training group, you tell the kid under hypnosis and torture what you want them to accomplish and let them figure out how to accomplish it. I grew up in that model. General Patton used it. I was cheaper. Kids died all around me, but some figured out what to do to succeed. It had a kind of intelligent logic to it that as the kid has to figure out what to do on their own, maybe the KGB won't have seen this strategy before and it will work. Next, I want to talk about the type of training that the kids received that they were assigned to get any at all. The training consisted two weeks of hard torture during which they were taught how to do blowjobs, spread their legs, ask for contraband to be moved, and sign alias names to the right places on contract forms to witness them. The contracts bound the pusher to work for the CIA front cumber without being able to sue. Let me say that another way. Both groups, or both groups were tortured using electricity and severe pain for two weeks. The trained kids, in addition to being told they had to move contraband because their lives depended on it, also had a couple of hours worth of instructions and practical guidance on how to do it. What do you think the results of the experiment were? The CIA found that this experiment that made no appreciable difference whether the kid was trained or not. Its reports made no mention of the two weeks of torture as that was off the record after the 1977 MK Ultra ban. They also made no mention of the type of training as the CIA wanted to hide from a possible future congressional prying eyes. That the kids were to move contraband by finding buyers and pushers. Instead, the CIA document said that the point of the experiment was to detect which kids could succeed in this life and whether any training that the CIA gave them could make a difference in that. The reason everything was limited to two weeks was that was the length of time that in the in-hospital, psychiatric hospitalization could maximally be extended to run basically healthy kids through testing of their condition. The CIA developed a bunch of bogus tests to run on ADD kids to justify their two-week hospitalization, like withdrawing them from sugar, food dyes, etc., it was a total scam. They just needed something so difficult that the parents couldn't easily do at home to con the parent into letting Johnny stay at the hospital. They withdrew the food all right. They barely fed the kids at all. They fed them out of boxes, prepackaged potato chip like Pringles, and called that a sugar-free diet. The last day the parents would come to pick the kid up, and interaction was observed carefully to see how well the kid could lie about his stay. And what he had eaten at the hospital. It was a complete fantasy. The kid had been down in the basement without a bed, clothes, or a single hot meal. The kids that passed had incredible abilities to make believe, so good that they even believed it themselves. They were multiples just like me. They had gone through an hour's hypnosis at the end of that torture, and with the help of the hypnosis, they had managed all that had happened to them in two-week period of time. The parents were told that they couldn't see the kids because the kids needed to learn a new way to relate to them to help their ADD, and they had to learn well before they saw them again. The parents wanted a break from the ADD kids for two weeks mostly, so it worked, and the kids did relate to their parents differently after two weeks of hard torture without a hot meal. Meanwhile, some say the CIA did actually give them the fluoride chelating drug 
a pill once a day so that the ADD was better. The program was popular with parents. The university facility tortured its own. Researchers forged results to show how effective it was, and others studied how to torture the kids and split their minds more reliably. Not all kids split well enough to pretend or to keep up the pretenses for long. These are the ones known as uh, now. Uh, these are the ones people know as of the finders kids. They were taken away from the parents. They were not able to find pushers in their communities, so they were so, sent to be sex slaves and drug mules, where they didn't have to perform at such a high level. If they couldn't even do that, then they were killed. They were not one-use kids for the sexual torture use of the ultra-rich. They were already used goods. The kids that Bush Sr. was expending were kids that came to the facility that were selected to be held in reserve for his use and his use only. Their parents had applied for their son's hospitalization, but the application had been held up. Bush Sr. had a certain look of a boy he liked, like the youngest boy eager to beaver in the Brady's house boys. They looked like he looked like he was the boy before it happened to him at age six. He kept on sodomizing kids like his dad sodomized him. His father kept it up much longer than others can imagine. He kept it up until he was close to death. Some things run in the families. Would you want to see your dad if that continued to be what you had to submit to? Dark and ugly secrets that even the principals might not know? What multiplicity being that what it is, Bush Sr., does he even know what he goes to that base and why? I leave it to you to remote viewing seals and imaginations to decide. I was not at the CIA because of my ability to imagine what loose ends there were. I was there to know what loose ends there were are and are failing to know what could cost my life and more than that. The actual results were the CIA training was not adequate in amount or qualities to anything to train a kid in pushing. So these experiments were not a test of that at all. The experiment was a cover story on how to get the kids into one's hands. There were lots of experiments on how to create mind-controlled kids, and it was mainly a matter of trial and error, not scientific research. There was a lot of variability due to the skills and personalities of the individual torturers. The CIA even poorly studied whether using multiple personality torturers was better to make multiple personality kids. That seemed to have some advantage sometimes. It depended on which personality they were in. Since that's not always easy to control, it was a bit hit or miss. If you used multiples for their tortures, they didn't always know the protocols and follow them because they were not in the personality that they knew. Yet they may still feel intuitively that it was dangerous to admit ignorance of these protocols. In the end, the CIA rarely used multiples as torturers or experiments. They were too unreliable. One multiple helped a child escape, and that caused a big flap. The multiple was me. Bush Sr. wanted me to torture a child and his family into being an oracle, like I had been tortured into being an oracle. This was just one of several attempts that Bush Sr. made to try to get my powers to belong directly to his family. I was training officers in remote viewing just fine without any torture or brainwashing at all. But Bush Sr., when he was DCI, left me at the basement of the CIA with this child, who was named George, who was about 10 years old, with the instructions to torture him into being an oracle. Given the ages of his relatives when he was DCI, this boy named George was probably his nephew, George Herbert Walker IV. I had one scared boy on my hands. I had done interrogations before the CIA. To do them, I looked at the person's mind for what the CIA wanted to know and wrote that down. I didn't have to see the person, let alone threaten or hurt them to do that. When I met with them, it was pro forma, and I asked them what they needed in terms of food, clothing, cigarettes, etc. to make them happy. So the first thing I did was ask George if he was hungry and ordered food to be brought down from the cafeteria according to his specifications. It was not how he wanted his hamburger, I remember him telling me. The ketchup was wrong, on when it shouldn't have been off, or vice versa. I looked up to the cafeteria. It still wasn't made right. He said that the lettuce was put on backwards, whatever that means. Okay, so that he was fussy about his food. It wasn't my fault. I ordered a cab. It was not that much older than I had been my own extra set of wheels waiting for me at the CIA that time. I had the cab driver take us to a four-star restaurant at the Ritz Hotel in D.C. and serve him what he wanted. 
the DCI uncle had taken me before, there before, which is why I thought of it. He ate while I bugged out and abandoned him at the restaurant. It was a fancy one. I figured no one would harm him there. It was better than being tortured in the CIA's basement of horrors. I went into hiding for two days. By then, Bush Sr.'s anger had found another target, my handler. George had eaten his burger and asked for another. It was only after dessert two hours later that he wondered what happened to me. Eventually, he was found. Meanwhile, the FBI started a manhunt for me. I was wanted on a kidnapping charge for kidnapping the nephew of the DCI. It wasn't as if I was trying to hide where George was. He had been found for the first night. I'd used a CIA credit card with my known CIA alias on it to pay for the bill in advance. I was just trying to be a good babysitter and get him the food he wanted. He wanted a Ritz hamburger made of slab grilled steak, barbecue sauce, and shredded lettuce. Who would not want such a thing instead of what the CIA's cafeteria served? When I came out of hiding, I called the FBI and told them where I was. Then I moved my location to the headquarters in D.C., which confused them. The FBI man at the headquarters insisted that I give myself up from where I had first called them. I guess my guardian angel was looking after me. I went back to the CIA instead. I walked into Bush Sr.'s office and asked him to call off the manhunt for me. Since I was standing in front of him and not missing anymore, he did. He was too busy to torture me right then, so I didn't happen. The next time I saw that George, he complained that I had ditched him. He didn't seem to have a clue that I had been ordered to torture and brainwash him by his uncle. I let it ride. I can't help it if some people are multiples on their own without any help. And maybe he was just clueless for another reason. Like being boxed on the side of the head too often by family members are naturally just being very slow. There are several ways that you can get amnesia, and there are also several ways that you just get slow. The CIA also studied brain damage as a way of inducing it. Oh, I said that it would just be someone about the lives of those kids that went through the university facility. The torture was unimaginable for two weeks. After that, they had to report once a week or so to CIA case officers on a corner near their school to give them a signed contract. If the kid did not deliver or did not seduce his parents' friends and blackmail them into pushing for the CIA, or in some other way get a person that week to agree to push drugs, hand guns, or pimp girls, then the CIA put the heat on him. That could take a variety of forms and was largely up to the imagination of the case officer. The simplest method was to bully the kids by twisting his arm or threatening him or his parents with death, dismemberment, or torture. That was usually enough to get the kids to deliver. The kids ranged in age from about 6 to 16 years old. The case officers preferred the younger ones, about ages 8 to 10. They still tried to obey without a lot of flack. There was a quota system. The kid had to make a certain amount of money for the CIA each month. If he did, he could be disappeared into the finder's den. Those kids had it much worse. Sometimes a case officer would take the kid to see those whorehouse drug dens to impress upon the kid not to screw up as some junkie who was handcuffed to a bed served 10 to 15 men a day. The kids that ended up in the finder's den were already severely traumatized before they had arrived with such psychological torture. Torture, whether it's consciously remembered or not, has a crippling effect on the mind. It is worse than broken bones. Bones heal up. Violated trusts and ruined self-worth does not. The kids made a kickback, a small finder's fee for delivering each pusher. It amounted to about $100 a month. It was a lot of money for poor kids. Occasionally, a parent figured out that the kid was being paid, and not for mowing lawns, either. A few parents sent each other the kids into programs to get a second dividend coming into the household. More often than not, other kids noticed the extra money and even asked to get in. As a result, some kids got sucked into the CIA net of organized crime and prostitution to make money. This was a national problem. I'm only talking about one facility. The failures ended up in the finder's dens are dead. These kids were not unusually sold into sexual slavery to independent brothel owners in the USA or child trafficking networks like the Delta Network.